Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So as we get started this morning, I want to show you a picture of someone that you may recognize. Uh, And you may recognize this person for multiple reasons. You might recognize this guy. Now, depending upon your age... You may know him from one thing or a different thing. Uh, some of you may know him as Elliot Ness from Untouchables in the early 1960s. If you're from my generation, you probably know him as the host of Unsolved Mysteries, Robert Stack, the host of Unsolved Mysteries. So this show from the late 80s into the 90s, uh, just a classic show about unsolved mystery. It's all there in the title. Uh, some case, cold cases or cases that haven't quite been solved yet, the, the public can help assist with. Maybe a robbery where the, the thieves got away. You can help. If you know anything, you can, you know, contact us. It, getting to some paranormal activity on some episodes and that sort of thing. But they were just trying to solve some mysteries of the universe. Well, today we're going con- to conclude our series, Home Sweet Home, by looking at one of the greatest mysteries in the universe. So we are in the final week, not only of this series, but the final week of the Old Testament, guys. So after today, we have gone all the way through the Old Testament from beginning to end in chronological order. And next week, we will start our journey through the New Testament as we are in the year of the Bible, going through the Bible front to back every weekend this year. So in our final week of this series, final week of the Old Testament, Home Sweet Home, we're looking at the period that's called the post-exilic period. So the ancient Jews had been in exile in Babylon for several decades under God's judgment. They were in kind of in waves released back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild their country, rebuild the temple, and all the things that surround that. We've been discussing the last uh, three weeks or so here. And so today we're going to look at Uh, one of the greatest mysteries of all time, and that is how God works. As we conclude this series and this, our study of the Old Testament, we're going to look at how God works. Now, it is a mystery because we cannot fully know how God works. We can't completely know his ways, his methods, his reasons, but God, in his grace to us, does reveal to us in Scripture, throughout Scripture, certain ways that he may work. Or he'll point to certain uh, patterns or themes of how he works that then we can sort of say, okay, God seems to do things in this way uh, maybe most of the time, or we can, you know, sort of see different ways in which God might do certain things. So in our effort to figure this out, we're going to look at two ways that Scripture shows us that God works, and we'll apply it to our lives, and we're going to do that with the final two books of the Old Testament that we haven't covered yet. The first one is Esther, so we're going to look at the story of Esther this morning for a bit, and then we'll look at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the prophet Malachi. Now, on the surface, these two books don't really go together. They're not really themed together. They're happening in around the same period of time, but we are going to theme them, one showing, Esther showing us one way in which God works, Malachi showing us another way in which God works. So here's the first one we're going to see as we look at the book of Esther here for just a few minutes. The first way that God works is God works even when we can't see it. God works even when we can't see it. So 
here's what we're going to do for Esther, okay, guys? We're going to have a little bit of fun for a minute. I'm going to move us out of the way. Are you ready for You're not ready for this, are you? You're not ready. I've done this a couple of times before. I'm going to do it again. So I'm going to introduce this, the characters in the story of Esther, and I had my phone. Where'd my phone go? I'll put it back here. So I'm going to introduce the, the story of Esther and the main characters of the book, and then I'm going to try to retell the story in eight minutes or less. That's my challenge. I even have a timer to see how good I am at this, all right? And then we'll, and then we'll apply what we, what we talk about. So let's look. So let me just say this. Esther is unique in that it is only one of two books in the entire Bible named after a woman and about a woman. So Ruth, that we talked about earlier this year, is the other one. The only two books of the Bible that are about women named after women. Uh, and that's caused some controversy over time. I won't get into all of that, but there's been some people like, I don't like Esther, and, and here, here's the reason why. It's not because it's about a woman or because it's named after a woman. The, the, the reason is what we're talking about. Esther shows us that God works even when we can't see him working because Esther is the only book in the entire Bible where God is never mentioned at all. He's never named He's never even hinted at. If you, you could pull Esther out of the Bible and you would think, this is a really cool Disney princess story, which is why we're going to make it a Disney princess story. <laughs> this is why, okay? So I'm going to introduce the characters of the story. I'm going to start the timer after I introduce the characters and tell the story, and we'll see how good I am at eight minutes or less, all right? There are four main characters in the story of Esther. First, we have King Xerxes. This is King Xerxes, okay? Um, so um, just a, back, a background on him. So his father, Cyrus, was one of the kings who let the Jews go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. So his dad did that. So during his lifetime, during this story of Esther, if you look at the timeline, it's going to be probably really early on in the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel. This is happening in Persia, okay, not in Jerusalem. The king lives in Persia, but he's allowed the Jews to go back, and they've started, just started to rebuild the temple when he takes over. Now, his son, we've also talked about last week, his son is the one who gets the letter written to him that halts the building of the temple, okay? So his dad, really nice guy. His son, maybe not so much, but this is the king we're talking about, King Xerxes. He's right smack dab in the middle, king of Persia. This is his right-hand man. His name is Haman, Okay, so as you can tell, he is not the hero of our story. I won't give anything away yet, but he's not a great guy. This is the right-hand man of the king, Haman. This is Mordecai, yeah, Geppetto, yeah, it's, it's Mordecai. So Mordecai is just a normal, everyday Jewish guy living in Persia near, at the time of Esther's start near the capital city, uh, near the palace, but not in the palace yet. But he's an important guy, just a regular, everyday sort of guy. And then we have the heroine of our story, we have Esther, yeah? So this is Esther. She's, again, a normal Jewish girl. Now, both of her parents at this point are deceased, and so Mordecai has taken her in. He's adopted her, probably as the next of kin under Jewish law. So they're cousins, but he's sort of got, you know, he's sort of watching out for her. He's got her back, okay? So now with all the characters in here, I'm going to try to do this. I didn't realize this was going to be this difficult, but here we go, okay? Um, where's the start button? Okay, ready? Oh, it just disappeared. Good, I have extra time. Okay, wait and go. Okay, so once upon a time in a land far away in Persia, there was King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes had a wife named Queen Vashti. So one day he decides, I'm going to throw a six-month-long party. That sounds great. And so King Xerxes throws this party, and while he's at the party, he summons his wife, Queen Vashti, to show up at the party. She decides, for whatever reason, I don't want to come to your stinking party. So she says, thanks, but no thanks to the invitation. He's so enraged by this that he decides, I'm going to throw you out. So he basically divorces Queen Vashti, deposes her from the kingdom, and now he's got to look for a new queen. 
This is where the story gets really interesting, right? So uh, he decides, I'm going to have this year-plus-long Bachelor TV show. Bachelor BC is what goes on. <laughs> he has the first ever recorded beauty pageant in Western history. And so, for, again, for more than a year, he has these women that are paraded around, and they, have all, they do all the training. They probably put the book on their head to balance. They, they, they do everything. And so uh, they, they come into him, and they have this... Uh, this thing. So one of the women who are trying out to be the, the next wife of this guy is Esther. We don't really think she chose this. She was kind of chosen for the, it was chosen for her, but she's one of the women. And so, uh, where's the other guy? Here it is. So Mordecai, her cousin, tells her, hey, this is cool that you're going to try out for this pageant, but for whatever reason, we don't know why, he says, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Again, we don't know why. No one, no, he doesn't, doesn't say why. He just says, don't tell them. Maybe it was going to be like, you know, a negative against her on her scorecard. I don't know. Anyway, he tells her, don't tell. And so she tries out for the beauty pageant. And guess what? She wins. She wins season one of The Bachelor. I don't know if he wins or she wins. Anyway, the king is so smitten with Esther, he decides, that's my queen. That's my lady. So now she is Queen Esther of Persia. Now, enter in this guy, Haman. Not a good guy, right? Boo, yeah. So Haman is the king's right-hand man. And he, he really takes his job a little too seriously. He takes himself a little too seriously. So it probably was the custom, maybe even the law, that everyone would bow to him as they see him. Uh, but he really, really, really needs that validation from people, obviously. But here's the deal. At the same time that Esther is chosen as king, Mordecai is advanced into the kingdom. He gets a job inside the palace so he can keep tabs on his cousin Esther as things progress, which will come in really handy in just a minute. Okay, so Mordecai is here. He's just doing his thing, you know, da, 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 and then Haman comes by, and Mordecai will ref doesn't bow to him. He doesn't do that. He doesn't want to bow to Haman, and Haman's so enraged by this, he goes home, and he decides, here's what I'm going to do. I know that Mordecai is a Jew, so I'm going to kill all the Jews. That seems like a really Hitlerian thing to do. So anyway, Haman decides, I'm just, I'm not, not just this guy, all of them. And so he goes to the king. Where's the king? He goes to the king the next day. He says, hey, king, these Jews are kind of a problem. They're kind of rebellious. Maybe we should kill them all. And the king says, I don't know about that. And so Haman says, here's what I'll do. I'm going to roll some dice, and then it'll decide when we should kill the Jews. And the king's like, okay. So again, he doesn't know Esther's a Jew yet. It's his wife. He doesn't know that. So he says, oh, okay, whatever. I guess you're right. I trust you. And so Haman rolls the dice. In Hebrew, they're called Purim or Purim, it'll be very important later, he rolls these dice to determine, in about a year is the date that is circled on his calendar, we're going to kill all the Jews. And the king's like, okay, cool, whatever. So Mordecai hears about this plan, is like, that's not good for me or for all of my family and friends, like thousands of us, or for Esther. And so he goes and tells Esther, hey, Esther, I just overheard this plot that Haman <laughs> is going to kill all the Jews. So what you need to do is go talk to your new husband and convince him not to do that. So that sounds like a good plan, except, here's the caveat, anyone who goes into the king's presence without him summoning them is a capital crime. The punishment is death. So Esther's like, ah, I don't know about that. And so Mordecai says, yeah, you probably should. You're either going to die now or you're going to die later. Let's figure it out. And so she decides, okay, so she goes in to her husband without being summoned, and he says, what can I do for you? And she says, hey, I've got, I've got a meal, I've got a, a, a banquet, I've got planned for you and for Haman to come tonight. 
It's like, okay, let's go to the banquet. And so the king and Haman, they go to Esther's banquet. And so they have a great time. And then she's like, hey, I've got another banquet we're going to come to tomorrow night. Would you guys like to come? They're like, yeah, this food's so good and this is so great. Let's do it again. I'm not gonna, I might make it. Uh, we're we're going you know, to have a great time tomorrow night. So they're gonna, they plan to go tomorrow night to the banquet. So on the way home, Haman sees Mordecai. And guess what Mordecai doesn't do? He doesn't bow to Haman again. This enrages Haman so much that he now decides it's not good enough to kill all the Jews a few months from now. I got to kill this Jew as soon as possible. So he decides the next morning I'm going to go to the king and tell him, hey, Mordecai's a troublemaker. He's a rebel. He's no good. I want to impale him on this huge 75-foot-tall stake that I put in front of of my house. Kind of weird, but again, he's a weird dude. So he's going to go to the king and request that Mordecai, this guy, be killed the next day. However, that same night, the king can't sleep. And for some reason, he's tossing and turning. He needs a nighttime story. He needs a bedtime story. So he has one of his servants read him sort of the history of his, of his kingdom, of his rule. And the, the person reads him a very interesting story that we haven't talked about yet. One of the first things that Mordecai does after he gets into the palace, he overhears two of the king's guards plotting to assassinate him. So he warns Esther about this plot, and she tells the king about the plot and gives Mordecai credit for hearing about this information to thwart the assassination attempt. So as the king is hearing this story, he's like, you know what? I never rewarded Mordecai for what he did for me. I never gave him anything for saving my life. Maybe I should do something for him. We'll figure this out tomorrow. So the next day, Haman <laughs> uh, Haman shows up to the king and says, Hey, king, uh, I got something to tell you. The king says, wait, wait, I got something to tell you first. Okay, let me ask you a question. What should I do for a guy who's been very faithful and loyal to me? Now, Haman, being full of himself, assumes the king's talking about him. And so he says, well, let me think. What would I want here? I think what you should do, king, for a guy that's been loyal to you, you should give him your kingly robe, you should gift him one of your personal horses, and you should have him paraded around the city like a champion because he's, he, he's so awesome. He's so amazing. So, I mean, he's so awesome and amazing. And the king says, that's a great idea. So you remember a, a, a while ago when uh, Mordecai saved my life? Yeah, I, so I want you to give him one of my robes. I want you to give him one of my horses, and I want you to personally parade him around the city like a champion. So instead of Haman impaling Mordecai as he planned, he instead parades him around the city as a champion. What a turn of events. That's the first of several reversals from these two guys. So then the next, later that night, the king, and, the king and Haman, they go to Esther's banquet. Remember, they're going to the banquet. So at the banquet, the king, maybe he's had too much to drink. I don't know. He says, hey, Esther, I'll give you anything you want, even half my kingdom. And she says, okay, I got something you can do for me. There's this plot that I've heard about. You know, the, the edict that you signed about to kill all the Jews? That's actually a trick and a trap by somebody who's really seedy, and you can't trust this guy at all. You should probably kill him. And he's like, who would dare do such a thing? And she says, Haman would do such a thing. So she, so she tells on Haman. So the king is so upset that what does he do? He impales Haman, you know, he impales him on the same stake that Haman was going to impale Mordecai on. So another reversal with these two men. So now Haman is gone. He's out of the picture, so I have less people to hold, so that's good. So, so now Mordecai, uh, the, Haman's plot has been found out. The, the Jewish people are going to be saved except the king tells them, hey, you know, I did sign this into law, and I can't unsign it out of law. 
which is a really weak move for a king. You can't, like, undo your own law. Anyway, he can't. And so they decide, they come up with a different plan. Hey, so we have this date where the Jews are going to be killed. Let's make a second law. On the same day, the Jews can defend themselves from being killed and slaughtered to death. So the king's like, that's a great idea. You guys are really smart. And so then they, so the day comes, and there's two days of battle and war in the kingdom, and the Jews win this battle. They kill over 75,000 of the enemies who had tried to annihilate them and destroy them off the face of the planet. So that's a really good thing. And so then from that, remember the dice that Haman had used to determine what day it would be on? Those are called Purim. So there's a two-day Jewish festival every spring called Purim or Purim that commemorates this event where the Jews were saved from annihilation. So then at the end of the story here, uh, Mordecai then is advanced to second in command by the king. So not only is, does, does his enemy parade him around instead of killing him, not only does his enemy impale on the stake that he was going to be impaled on, but then he gets his, all of his property, all of his possessions, and his sweet job with a nice corner office. And so, but then in the end, Esther and Mordecai, and sort of the king who's kind of, you know, just there, uh, they end up saving all of the Jews from annihilation. How did I do? Oh, not good, did I? Oh, nine, nine and a half minutes. I mean, not, not bad, not bad. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. So that's the story of Esther, again, in nine minutes and 27 seconds, officially. Okay, so you may have heard that story before. Maybe you haven't heard that story before. If you haven't, now you have. And you would say, well, that's a really neat story, but I didn't hear God in there anywhere. Exactly, right? That's one of the main issues that scholars and even some people have had with the book of Esther, the story of Esther, is, well, God didn't save his people. His people saved his people. Well, God wasn't even mentioned. Like even the, So the reason that Mordecai maybe didn't bow to Haman may have been for religious reasons, but it's never said. He never says it. It's never even hinted at. It's never even a thing that's part of the story. They never even... Now, they celebrate this uh, festival... And so the Jewish people do this, but it's not even really a religious festival. Even today, it's kind of like a Jewish Halloween. They wear masks and costumes, and it's, a, it's kind of a, one of their, uh, it's kind of a weird thing for them because it's not really religious in the way that most of their other feasts and festivals are. But I think that's a great point to make about this story, is don't you think, don't you think, especially if you are a person of faith, don't you think that God was doing something in the middle of that story? Don't you think that at key, pivotal points along the way, God had something to do with some of the coincidences that just happened to happen there? I think so. I think even Esther being chosen as a queen was not a coincidence. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. Again, the, the, the fact that just as Esther is entering the palace, just at that same time Mordecai gets a job in the palace, did that just happen to happen? Or maybe was God working something out for a specific purpose. When Mordecai just happens to hear about the assassination plot on the king just after he takes this job, is that, was he just in the right place at the right time? I mean, maybe, but it's also quite possible that God put him in the right place at the right time. When, at the pivotal moment in Esther chapter 5, when Esther's take, she's risking her very life to go talk to the king without being summoned, and if you read it, Esther 5, his response, there's no warning from him, like, you better not, if you cross that line, he doesn't say, well, I gotta kill you now, he doesn't, he just welcomes her right in as if there's no law at all on the books. Did the king just happen to be really nice to his new wife, or do you think that maybe God did something to soften his heart in the, without even him knowing it? 
I think it's quite possible that God was at work even though he couldn't be seen. And then you think that the night before Haman is going to ask to kill Mordecai, the king just happens by coincidence to read the story of Mordecai saving his life. And he just happened to decide, well, let's reward him. Or did maybe God have that read to him and bring things to his remembrance by design, on purpose, for a plan? God may never have been mentioned, but he was obviously at work. He may not have been seen, but he was obviously at work. And I think that's how you and I live our lives much of the time. We go about our day doing our stuff. We go to our job. We have our family. We hang out with our friends. We're in our neighborhood. We're doing our stuff. And we don't really, it's kind of like the, the apps on your phone. You know, you think, what is that? Well, if you delete that, your phone's not going to work anymore is what's going to happen. But what, what is this, like, dot SYS thing? Well, what, it's like it makes your phone work. It, it's always in the background, but it's essential to the function of your phone. That's how we live life. God's always there, most of the time, working in the background where we can't see him, but he's absolutely working. He's not taking a day off. He's not just leaving it up to us to decide how to do everything all the time. He comes in at certain moments. He does certain things. Even if we don't know it's him doing it, he's absolutely constantly at work in our lives. That's how we live. And looking back at your life, I wonder how many coincidences were really God doing something. I wonder how many things that just happened to work out was God putting the pieces of your life together in perfect order. I wonder how many times things that were just perfect timing were maybe God ordaining certain things to happen in your life. How many times was that God's plan, his direction, his intervention? So my hope is, even though we, we haven't gotten to a lot that we could with Esther, uh, that we would see things the way that Esther is lined up. We would see our life in the same way that we read Esther. Like, it seems like I, I know to make this right decision, but it's because I prayed for God to give me wisdom in that, and so now I'm just going to act on that. Sometimes the things that we prayed for months ago are just now coming together because God's timing is perfect in every situation that we face. We can't always obviously see his hand at work all the time, but I hope if you're a person of faith that you can perceive the things that he's doing, the work being done behind the scenes, the man behind the curtain, pulling the levers that we just think, oh, this is just how life works, and this is just happenstance, and just coincidence after coincidence happens. No. May we realize that, like in Esther's story, God works even when we can't see it. Let's move on to the book of Malachi, and <clears throat> I will say with this, we're going to read quite a bit of scripture in this second part here with Malachi. It's going to be kind of quick, quick hits here, because what we're going to do is we're going to look at this idea. The second way that God works in Malachi is this. God works even when we don't deserve it, is the second way that God works. Now, I will make a disclaimer. Uh, we never deserve anything from God ever. So that's just the best way I could word this idea, but I want to make sure I make that very clear. God never owes anyone anything. God is never obligated to do anything for anyone ever. Yet by his grace, he does choose to work in and through us, and he does it even when we are extremely undeserving, as Malachi is going to show us. So Malachi is basically this prophet sort of talking sort of to himself and sort of to the people, it's set up, uh, scholars would say, almost like an ancient courtroom where Malachi the prophet speaking on behalf of God would make a complaint 
um, for God toward the people. You haven't done this, God says. And then the people respond with, what do you mean we haven't done whatever you've just said? And then the prophet responds, well, here's the proof of that accusation. So the accusation, the denial, and then the proof is sort of how Malachi set up one after the other after the other. And so what we're going to look at here is we just kind of go rapid fire through Malachi really quickly, um, are setting up how undeserving God's people in Malachi are for him to still be working. So we'll look at their, how they're undeserving, and then we'll look at how God works anyway. So again, let's, let's start in, at chapter 1. So the first thing we're going to see is uh, God accuses his people of disrespecting him and accuses them of impure worship. So this is Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. It says, The Lord of heaven's army says to the priest, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you, the people, ask, How have we ever shown contempt for your name? God says, You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you, the people, ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? And God responds, you defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So God is establishing, he's reminding the people here that he had standards for their form of worship. So again, they wouldn't come in and necessarily sing songs. They would, but their worship is a little bit different, a little more bloody and gory. They would bring animals to be slaughtered by the priest and then to be burned, parts of it burned and separated. And there's all, that's, you know, Leviticus is all about those laws. Numbers do all about the laws there. And they have seemed to forgotten the importance of God's standard of worship. They're offering animals that are not pure, they're sick, they're lame, they're kind of, you know, what's left over. Oh, God, God won't care, you know, if I just give this one. It's going to die anyway, so why not die on the fire as a sacrifice to God? He, so the people are really guilty of not offering God their best here. They're saying, oh, it's fine. God won't notice. God won't care. It's no big deal. Meanwhile, God says, it's not fine. I do notice. I do care. And it is a big deal. And he tells them he's not pleased with their worship. And the heart of God's complaint is really this. Over and over and over, I offer you my best. Why won't you offer me your best? That's what he's telling the people here. Over and over and over, I sacrifice for you and give to you, and you won't sacrifice and give back to me. I've given you everything. Why won't you return the favor? And I wonder, in our modern worship, I wonder even for me how, how many times I've been guilty of this, right? Ah, uh, it's good enough, and it's, it's fine, and, you know, sometimes, I wonder how many times I've mailed in my worship to God, how many times I've, it's been styled over substance with worship, how many times it's not, my heart's not really been in it, I wonder if I've ever been in this same position, but what God is saying, he's challenging his people, I think he would challenge us today, he says, I want your best, I want your heart to be in it. I want you to really, like, even, even as you're, you know, singing the words on the string, to really think about what those words mean and then think about how, how we can truly from our heart be singing those words. God's looking for our best. Then he continues on in verse 13. He continues in, the, in a similar vein of thinking here. He goes on to say, The people say, It's too hard to serve the Lord. 
and you turn up your noses at my commands, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being represented as offerings. Should I accept from you such, should I accept from you such offerings as these, asks the Lord. So his complaint here is there, his complaint is that his people are just complaining all the time. It's too hard to serve the Lord. It's too hard to serve the Lord. That's what they're, you know, he's just like, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to serve the Lord. It's like there's, and God just like, stop whining. That's what God's saying. Just stop complaining. It's, it's not too hard. I made, I made it as, as easy as I can make it. It says, if you don't want to, we talked about this maybe last week or the week before. If you don't want to enter into this relationship, you don't have to, right? That's what God's saying. You don't have to do this, but if you're going to do it, then do it. If you're going to say you will, do it. If you say you're in, be in. That's the challenge God gives to his people. And I think it's, it's a good reminder for us that serving God is not always easy. It's not always convenient. But if we've signed up for this relationship, we talked about it before, there, there are obligations that we have on our end to receive the benefits that God has on his end. It's, it's any, like any relationship, it works the same way. So if we've signed up for it, uh, let's do it. So then in chapter 2, he kind of picks on, on me a little bit, right? He gets to the priest and the leadership of the people. He's got some words for them. So let's, let's not skip over that. Let's just let's get right to it, okay? Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, he continues on. He says, listen, you priests, this command is for you. Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you have not taken my warning to heart. Verse 3, I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices, and I will throw you on the manure pile. Yum, right? Glad we had burritos before church and not after. So God has words for the priests, for the leaders. And what he's saying is, I thought I could count on you guys. Like, you were supposed to be the leaders here, and you're as bad, if not worse, than anybody else. You're supposed to be dependable. Where did that go? He says, he says, I have to tell you to make up your mind. Should your mind be made up? Aren't you committed to the work of the Lord, to the work of the ministry? You're not supposed to waver and waffle. And I don't know if I believe what I'm saying. It's like just, so it's, it's a reminder for them. And even for, for me, it's a good reminder. I, I'm not, I don't call myself a priest. You can, if you want to call me Father Stephen, please don't do that, right? That's just weird. For, to me, it's weird. Um, but here's the deal. It's a good reminder when I read Malachi 2, God's not looking for perfection, but he's looking for someone who can be dependable, right? He's not looking for someone who never makes a mistake, who never makes an error, who never slips up. That's not what he's looking for, but he is looking for someone who is faithful to him, who is committed to the work that God's called him to. And so there are some times where I have to, I have to read this and God's like, are you sure you're up to this? Like, are you, are you sure you want to do this? Are you able to commit to what this commitment entails? And if so, go for it. And so it's, it's a good thing uh, even for me here. So what, let's, let's keep on. And Malachi 2 continues on with the priest here. He says some other things uh, to them that we'll look at here for just a second. Malachi 2 verse 8. God says, but your priests have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You have corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people. For you have not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. 
So the leaders here, the priests in Malachi's day, are guilty of really false teaching. They're actively leading the people astray with their teaching. And then he says you're also showing favoritism. So to the people that kind of have this lifestyle that you aspire, you give them more attention. You show them more favoritism. You kind of turn a blind eye to their sin or maybe don't, let them, don't make them sacrifice as much as someone else because you want to buddy-buddy with them and rub shoulders with them. They're guilty of false teaching and favoritism. This is the same sin that the Pharisees in the days of Jesus were guilty of. He would, he would call them out because he would say, you're putting these, restrict, these things on the people that you're not even obeying. You're spouting all these laws and these codes and these verses that you don't even do what you're telling them to do. It's the same thing. He calls them hypocrites. They show favoritism with the elites in their community. And I'll just say, as a, as a person, as a Christ follower, and especially as a pastor, I don't want to be a Pharisee. Okay? That's not what I want. I want to give good, solid teaching. Now, it's not going to be perfect. And so if I say something, you're like, I don't know about that. If you don't know my email, I can get it to you. You can say, hey, what's the deal there? I'm fine with that. Uh, Also, as a minister, I want to practice what I preach. Again, God's not looking for perfection from anybody, even me. But he does want that consistent lifestyle. Don't want to be guilty of playing favorites, you know, someone who is a big giver. Let's pamper them, right? Put, give them the, where do you want to sit? We'll put your plaque, you know, your name on a plaque on, the, on that seat. You know, that's, you've never been there before. Um, that sort of thing. Not giving certain people more attention for specific reasons. And so my, my prayer, hopefully consistently, but especially as I read passages like Malachi 2 and other parts of the New Testament talking about what a pastor should be, my prayer is God help me to be that kind of leader. God help me to be that kind of person that pleases you. So then he moves on in chapter 2 here as we keep motoring along here. The next issue is a series of verses that kind of have the same overarching theme. God has has a very strong issue with how the people are treating other people. And it starts, we talked about last week, those concentric circles. He starts there and goes out from there. He starts at one of the most intimate relationships that are just falling apart nationwide, apparently, and that is marriages. So Malachi 2, verse 14, God says this, You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Now, this does not seem to be uh, God talking in uh, figurative terms. It seems to be literally talking to men who are being unfaithful to their wives, to their spouses. And even in, uh, in verse 16, it's very apparent that's what he's talking about, because one of his complaints later on in verse 16 is, husbands are just getting divorces willy-nilly. I had one professor in college who said, basically, in ancient Jewish culture, men would divorce their wives for burning with toast in the morning. So that's part of the problem here in Malachi 2, is they're not, they don't have a legal reason, they don't have a moral reason, they don't have a scriptural reason. They're just deciding, hey, there's, I don't like the way your hair looked yesterday, so we're getting a divorce. That's what's happening in Malachi 2. And the question is, why does God care about that so much? Why, is he, why does he care about marriages and relationships, and w- what's the deal? And it really comes down to God saying, if you can't be faithful to your wife, how are you going to be faithful to me? If you can't be faithful to the one person in life that you chose to be with, how are you going to be faithful to anybody else in your life? If you can't be trusted to see the sacredness of that relationship and the lifelong commitment of that relationship, you know, ups and downs, twists and turns, for better, for worse, rich, for poor, all that stuff, 
God's saying, if you're just like deciding, you know what, I, I just don't like you anymore, and so we're just going to call it quits. He's like, that's not how it's supposed to work, and so if that's how you treat that important relationship, everything else is going to fall apart. The bedrock of that essential relationship is what everything else is built on. And so it, he does continue, you see this because he continues on in verse 17, he goes to another uh, relationship that breaks down probably because of this first one, okay? So uh, Malachi 2 verse 17, Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Did you know that you could wear God out? You know, sometimes God just like, oh, I need a break from these people. You know, like sometimes we just sometimes wear him out. He says, I'm wearied with you. And then the question, well, how have we wearied him, you ask? You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? Now skip to chapter 3, verse 5, a similar idea here that we're going to connect together. Malachi 3, verse 5. He's talking about a future moment in time here. At that time, I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars, and I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice, for these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So when we put these two verses together, what we're seeing is another breakdown in society and relationships. The people here are guilty of hypocrisy. So what they're doing is they're not showing uh, kindness to people around them, but they're begging God to be kind to them. They're not showing justice to the people in their neighborhood or in their city, but they're begging God for his justice. Where's the God of justice? I've been wronged. Are you going to help me? And God's like, I don't see you helping anybody. I don't see you doing any good for anybody. You see, there's a disconnect. There's a hypocrisy in the people here. They expect God to do for them what they refuse to do for others. And I wonder if we look at ourselves and get really introspective here for a second, I wonder how often we may be guilty of this same thing. Even we don't think about it, we don't intend to, but I wonder how many times we ask God to be generous with me, yet I'm not generous with others. I wonder how many times I pray and beg for God's patience, and yet I don't show anyone any patience ever. I wonder how often I ask God to be kind and loving to me, yet I'm the most terrible person to be around you've ever met in your life. I wonder how, how often we see that. And we see this in the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus later on tells us how to pray, in part of that he says, forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive our debtors. The same idea that Malachi is talking about, Jesus talks about in the model prayer. So he, he puts this together. You can't just pray for God to do all these things for you when you refuse to do it for others. So we're seeing, again, we're, we're piling it on the people here in Malachi a lot to show this point here that God works even when we don't deserve it. So here's the final straw. Then we'll get to the good news here in just a second. So in Malachi 3, it's kind of the final straw for God. He's piled up all these accusations, all these guilty things, all these sins of the people. He's calling them out for all sorts of things. And then he says this, Malachi 3, verse 13. You have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? You have said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or by trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we are sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed. For those who do evil get rich, and those who dare, to, who dare God to punish them suffer no harm. 
So the people are guilty of saying, what's the use of serving God? We serve God and things are terrible. They serve God and they, they don't serve God and things are great. What's the issue here? So what the people here, in essence, are guilty of is they're guilty of using God instead of serving God. Their, their complaint is, what have you done for me lately, God? My life's kind of falling apart. My life kind of stinks right now. And I don't see any benefit of serving you in this at all. My life is just in shambles. There's nothing but ashes around me. I, don't, I mean, there's just one thing after another, and you haven't helped me at all. Like, what's the point? What's the use? What's the good of serving you if I do all I can and you do nothing, and yet everybody else around me is just doing their own thing, and they're thriving, and they're rich, and they have all the stuff they want, and their relationships are good? Like, what's the point? And this is what, here's, here's what I would, I'm going to give this a term, and maybe you, I, I've never heard this before, but maybe you have. Uh, this is what I would call practical agnosticism. This is how some, e- even people who would say they are of the faith, sometimes live their lives, okay? So they would say, well, maybe God, maybe the God of the Bible is right, but maybe this other belief system is right. So I'm going to hedge my bets, and just not really believe too much into any one thing. So either way, in the end, I'm good. Like, you know, I'll be into the reincarnation thing with Buddhism, or I'll be into the God thing in the Bible. So when I die, either way, either I'm going to heaven because I've been a good person, or I'll come back as a more educated life form, a more enlightened form, because I've been good according to this religion over here. So people sometimes tend to live that way. They don't want, they want to go back and forth. They say, what's the use of putting all your eggs in one basket when you don't even know if you can be right or not? They would say, oh, there's more than one way. There's more than one way to figure this out. It'll all work out in the end. It doesn't really matter. And God says, that's not how this works at all. And again, if we apply that complaint back to Esther, we can see how it, it doesn't make sense. We don't, don't always see that God is doing something, but we can know and believe by faith that he is at work. He's not forgotten about you. He's not taking the weekend off. He doesn't take a nap. He doesn't have to plug in. He's not, you know, he's not like a robot. He doesn't, he doesn't wear out. He has no battery pack. You know, he needs to be replaced. That's not who he is. And so even if we don't sense him working or see him working or feel him doing anything, we can know by faith that accusation doesn't hold water because God is always working. So the people, we've piled on the sins of the people, the complaints of the people, of God, that sort of thing. But what we're talking about is God works even when we don't deserve it. So how do we see this in this case in Malachi? Okay, how do we see this? Well, there's three quick things I'll close on how we see God working in the book of Malachi. I'm not pulling this from other things. We're pulling this straight from the same book, okay? So we, I think we've established the case the people here are undeserving, right? People are pretty rotten, pretty terrible, not much, not much worse or better than me, right, most of the time. So I'm in the same boat as them. So how does God work even when we don't deserve it? The first thing we see here is God's present mercy. That's the first way that God works. Malachi 3, verse 6. God says, I am the Lord, and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. So, despite Israel's litany of sins, their repeated disobedience, God is still working. And he says, it's because of my character, it's because of my faithfulness, it's because of my covenant with my people that I haven't destroyed you. So, God doesn't work off emotion like sometimes we do. If he did, he would destroy the planet about every other day. I've had enough of these people. 
you know. He said, it's because I don't change. It's because of my mercy that you're not destroyed. So we see God's mercy at work even though we don't deserve it. God shows mercy to us even when we're unmerciful. He shows faithfulness to us even when we're unfaithful. He shows kindness to us even when we're unkind. He shows love to us even though we are unloving. Even though we try to go our own way without him, he still tries to lead us and guide us on the path that is best for us. That's God's present mercy at work, even when we don't deserve it. The second way that we see God working here in Malachi is what I'm going to call a future messenger. Back up to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the first verse of chapter 3. God says, look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So Malachi in chapter 3 here is prophesying the coming of John the Baptist. He says, I'm going to send my messenger to go before me here. So he, and we, as we see, in, and we'll get there in, in the Gospels, John prepared the way for Christ. He came a few years ahead of Jesus to kind of get people's attention. Hey, get right with God. Get ready. What Malachi said is going to happen. He's going to bring destruction and judgment if you don't turn to him. And then he says, there's someone that's going to come after me that's going to change everything. John came by design before Christ uh, to prepare the way. And so what we have, I, here, I want to pull this into our present day. Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, sent us the Holy Spirit, who is our messenger. So as John prepared the way for Jesus to come to make all things right, the Holy Spirit is our messenger. He's the one that tells us, hey, let's not do that. That's destructive. That's sinful. That's bad. You will not like what happens if you follow that course of action. That's who our messenger is. Even when we don't deserve it, the Holy Spirit still speaks. He still works and moves and acts in our own hearts, in our own lives, for our good and God's glory. Here's the last thing that we'll look at, we'll look at today, and that is the, the last way that God works here, even when we don't deserve it, is he sends the future Messiah. So let's end on this. We're going to read the entirety of Malachi chapter 4. It's just six verses, don't worry. Okay, it's not that long. Malachi chapter 4, we're going to look at the future Messiah here. Here's what it says. The Lord of heaven's army says, The day of judgment is coming like a burning furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be, will be burned up like straw. They'll be consumed, roots, branches, and all. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. On the day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse." And that's the final thing that God says for about 400 years until John the Baptist shows up. So despite Israel's sin and rebellion, God still promised their Messiah. He promised them deliverance. He promised them hope, even though they were undeserving of all of that. But in fact, that's the whole point of the coming Messiah for the people. The Messiah came to do what they could not do. He came to, he completely fulfilled the law when they fall short time after time. 
The point of the Messiah in coming is that he was who they could not be. They could never be righteous before God on their own, and so God sent his son to be their righteousness for them. That's the whole point. So the idea that we fall short and God's still working was always part of the plan. Old Testament, New Testament, current day. The whole point of Jesus, that's the beauty and the power of the gospel that we'll look at uh, next week. Another aspect of the gospel as we start the New Testament is that Jesus came because we are undeserving. Does that make sense? It, It is amazing that he came even though we are undeserving, but he came because we are undeserving. He came because we are sinners in need of saving. He came because we are rebels against God in our sin. He came because we are enemies of God in our sin. Jesus even said himself, he said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. So yes, despite our imperfections and our flaws and our sin and our rebellion, Jesus came and that is why he came, so that we can find forgiveness and freedom in him. So even on your worst day, in your worst moments, lean into Jesus because that's the point. Even when you fall and slip in your sin and you feel so unworthy, lean into Jesus because that's the point. That's the whole point. That's how God works for undeserving people just like you and just like me. So again, um, like, like Esther, may we understand that God is working even when we can't see it. And like Malachi, may we understand and live in the fact that God works for us even when we don't deserve it. Let's pray. God, sometimes we know that we just, we just can't, things are cloudy and we can't see what you're doing. We're unaware of what you're doing. But help us to know by faith that you are always at work. When we, when we doubt, would you strengthen us? When we question, would you just calm our fears? When we just don't know where you are, would you just gently, maybe even today has been a gentle reminder that you're never that far away, that you're always there and always working. Not just watching and waiting for us to fail, but you're doing things behind the scenes to lead us and guide us and put us in certain positions for certain reasons for our good and your glory. Help us to be reminded and encouraged today that even when we can't see it, you are always at work. And God, also help us to remember that even though we are undeserving people who are fallen and impure, that you are always working despite that. That you are, you are doing something even though we push against it, you're working. Even though we resist, you're working. Even though we complain, you're working. Even though we sin, you're working. Help us to know that is the point of your son, Jesus. He came for imperfect people. He came for sinful, fallen people. He came for frail people. He came for sick people. And that's all of us. So help us to see the beauty of who Jesus is in spite of and because of our imperfection. Help us to see that's the whole point of you sending your son, Jesus. And I thank you for that reassurance and that power today in Jesus' name. Amen.